0: Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to proclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking to Soraya Shamali, the author of Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, which is out now from Atria Books.
1: Hi, Kendra. This book.
0: Oh my goodness. (laughs) You know, I feel like this book destroyed us both and then put us back together
1: again. Uh, Oh my goodness you know, we recently talked to Rebecca Tracer about anger and her book was helpful, but this book was helpful as well. Like they're not the same book. So if you think this is the same book, this is not the same book. The terminology was helpful and the research was helpful. And man, it's just so good. And while Rebecca Tracer's Book was more in a direct response
0: to the 2016 election and took a very political Mm -hmm. bent because that's what she does. Uh, Soraya's book focuses more on sociology and how women's anger
1: appears in our day to day lives. Absolutely, and Soraya is she's a wonderful writer and she is an activist and her work focuses on the role of gender and culture and politics and religion and media. And she's also the director of the Women's Media Center for the Speech Project. And she is an organizer of the Safety and Free Speech Coalition, both of which are involved in helping to curb online abuse, media and tech diversity, and just expanding women's freedom of expression. So she's just a really amazing human doing wonderful work. And this book is just incredible. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes
0: you read a book and it touches you in a very personal way and something that you struggled with in your life or, or experienced in your life. And this is definitely a book for us that we definitely were deeply affected by. And it's just an amazing book. And I've already like shared the love with so many other women online. Like you go read this book, please. It will change the way you view <laughs> anger. Just, Oh my goodness.
1: Definitely. I also really appreciated the intersectional approach that this book took because a lot of times, especially with the recent election here in the U.S., there was a lot of talk about feminism and like white women in particular. And, you know, so the fact that Soraya talks about how black women and Hispanic women and other women are affected by sexism as well was really helpful um, for my own thinking as well. Yeah. And she has
0: great sections also on disabled women and queer women and just all the different facets of that. And I greatly, like Autumn said, appreciated that perspective because that's so important to an analysis of women's anger because it's, you know, we're looking at all women, uh, not just uh, women from one particular group. Um, And so obviously we love this book. Soraya did a phenomenal job we were blown away by this book and i'm still in the process of going back through the book and underlining all the things uh so have a pen or pencil handy because yes i think
1: i highlighted almost my entire book but let's now go to our discussion with soraya about rage becomes her
0: So well, Soraya, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today and talk about your book, Rage Becomes Her. Uh, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you, too. Well, we were so excited when you reached
1: out to us on Instagram about your book. And I think Kendra read the message first and was like, do you want to read this? And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> like, of course we <laughs> want to read this. And as I mentioned a minute ago, we've just been talking about this book nonstop for weeks. So we're excited to get to talk to you about it finally.
2: Well, I'm I'm thrilled too. I really love your Instagram feed, and I can't remember which uh, post it was that prompted me to think it might be interesting. But I'm glad I did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, thank you. And you know, there's so many rich things in this book. I think I need to buy more tabs because (laughs) I used almost an entire stack of them that you buy at the store, and so I put so many different tabs in because so many great things to say. So I guess before I get ahead of myself, uh, for our listeners who haven't read your book yet, um, how would you describe it to them?
2: So I think a good description of the book is that it provides an overview from the sociological and political and psychological perspectives of the state of women's lives today through the filter of anger, through the filter of how our anger is perceived and treated. So I really tried to touch on the personal, the professional, and the political lives that we lead um, through this lens of anger.
1: And I mean, that's obviously a very relevant topic right now. And you mentioned in your book a little bit about why you started writing, but how did you actually, like, when did you know this was going to be a book? And Um, When did you start writing it?
2: So I wrote the book between September and December of last year, 2000, well now 2017. And I'd been writing about a lot of these issues of women's uh, social inequality globally for many years. And I'd had a book proposal that I just sort of kept tinkering with. But after the election in 2016, I was just struck like many of us were by the tone of the election and the very evident anger everywhere. Um, But as striking as that was, I was even kind of more struck and frankly appalled by how differently women's anger was being treated in that environment, both uh, women as candidates and women as members of The electorate. So it really crystallized after the election that using this understanding of anger um, might be a good way to approach the, the bigger topic.
0: I think there have been a lot. There's been a lot of discussion about women's anger recently in literature and online. Uh, but one of the things that I really appreciate about your book is your discussion of how our view of women's anger is socially constructed. Um, and in the beginning of the book, you say, "What would it mean to ungender our emotions?" So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how society perceives anger as a more m- masculine emotion and what that means for women. So this was,
2: I think, one of the most important things that I learned writing the book, which is that the way our anger, our anger, all of our emotions, actually, the way our emotions are understood um, is through a very sex-segregated lens. And in the same way that our labor is sex-segregated, for example, in the home, right, labor is really divided up in very gendered ways um, on the basis of this kind of very binary understanding of sex, um, so too are our emotions. And so if you look at the studies of how parents and other adults interact with children, even new newborn children and infants, it's very clear that they treat them differently depending on whether they identify them as girls or boys. And anger is one of the best examples of that. So if there's a fussy baby and adults think that it's a boy, they'll describe the baby using words that are closely associated associated with anger. But they'll describe the same baby if they think it's a girl using different words, particularly words that are distant from anger or frustration and instead are tied to neediness or vulnerability. And that division continues throughout our lives. And so I was really interested in how socially constructed our understanding of emotion is. Um, And when I talk about ungendering emotion, I mean that for all children, really. I mean, instead of trying to teach children how to think about emotions or display emotions based on whether they are girls or boys, we should be teaching them just how to have emotional health regardless of that, right? And... That's important for boys, too, because boys end up being held to sort of rigid codes of masculinity that make it difficult for them to show vulnerability or sadness or um, fear. Um, And that's also really not good for boys or or the relationships or society.
1: Your research on especially that you cited about young children in particular, I felt was really insightful, especially because now I have a lot of friends who have kids and they use very gendered terms to describe their their babies at times. And it really confuses me, but I've never really had words to articulate it before or science to back it up. So I found that really helpful. But it is interesting, like how that's part of like this bigger narrative that society tells women about how they should be angerless as opposed to like how women really are and how it like starts so young too. It's kind of troubling.
2: It is troubling. I mean, I think, you know, in so many different ways, girls are taught to prioritize others and to think of themselves as caretakers and nurturers. And there's nothing intrinsically bad about that. I mean, we all want to care for the people around us. But when we're taught those lessons in a way that requires us to suppress our own needs and desires and feelings, or in a way that makes defending ourselves incompatible with our identities or our femininity, then it's a problem, right? I mean,
1: mm-hmm.
2: we see over and over again in these studies examples of girls being expected to smile regardless of how they feel, so they lose a sense of authenticity around their, sm- their smiling, right? It's a It's a sort of facial adaptation to the Pressure for us to be pleasing to others. Uh, we also see in one study, I think it showed that girls in schools were asked to use their nice voices three times as often as boys were, and there are double standards around self-control and self-regulation, and um, who who in a classroom uh, is expected to be able to sit still or to emote, or you know, out of a desire to be excited or demand something, and. Those double standards have a really long tail uh, and they have a long tail in our personal lives and they have a long-term tail in our social lives. I mean, I think obviously it's not just gender. It's always, you know, at the intersection of so many things. So we see that race and gender and disability and class and ethnicity, all of them come together to reflect different ideas about status. And I I think the overarching theme is that people who are perceived as having higher status are, in many contexts, simply allowed to be angry, and that anger has power associated with it. And that starts really young in in our schools. I mean, young black girls are heavily disciplined for displaying behaviors that are associated, for example, in young white boys as leadership potential. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that includes assertiveness or aggression, uh, both of which get confused and policed as um, undesirable anger.
0: I think it's like how many girls are just called bossy instead of a leader. They're just seen as like the bitter shrew type women, you know. And they're, they're shut down. And I really appreciated the way that you looked at women and how anger for them and, and for, for us, how it's expressed differently and how it manifests itself differently. When you were doing your research, what were some of the biggest differences that you found
2: between men and women's anger? Uh, so a couple of things. I think many people might be surprised to learn that in... Several studies, very large studies, women report feeling anger more often. They report feeling it with more intensity and uh, for more sustained periods of time. And we tend to think of anger often as aggression, often very physical aggression, because in our minds, uh, stereotypes lead us to think about explosive anger in terms of like a man punching something, for example, right? Right. But in fact, women are verbally angry and aggressive much more frequently. Uh, and, and so the question of how we recognize anger is also steeped in recognizing men's displays of anger. And so I kind of chuckle sometimes because I've been on book tour for about 12 weeks and many people will say, well, why do you want to put more anger in the world? We don't need more anger. And that really misses the point. The fact is that women have a lot of anger that we simply don't acknowledge. And that anger is not displayed in the ways that men tend to display it, more physical, for example, but instead gets sublimated or diverted or materialized in very unhealthy ways in our bodies. And that was one of the main reasons I, I wrote the book, because so often this quality of suppressed and repressed anger takes a toll on us as human beings. It actually hurts our bodies and our minds not to be able to express this emotion.
1: That right there is exactly the response that Kendra and I had when we finished this book, was we were like, wow, we didn't realize how much anger we were actually suppressing, just because it's so second nature. We kind of identified how even when we started this podcast, how we talked about it, we would say, like, we were annoyed or frustrated that the publishing industry was so male-dominated. and But we never, ever said we were angry. But then kind of realizing, like, oh, well, <laughs> that's why we even did this to begin with. And, I mean, it it made us wonder, like, why is it you think that so many women don't even realize that they're angry about the things that are happening around
2: them? Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, I think we are all socialized to ignore these signs in ourselves and to trivialize and minimize. We use this minimizing language. I mean, I did this for years. I did exactly what you just described, which is I would say, oh, it's not a big deal or don't worry about it. You know, I'm just frustrated or irritated. And it took me years to actually say I'm really angry about this thing, right? I'm I'm angry and I have the right to be angry. And as a matter of fact, why aren't more people angry about this, right? And right. and I think it's because we learn to think of anger as the moral property of boys and men. It it becomes detached from our notions and of ourselves as women. It becomes uh, something we associate with possible retribution and punishment because that's how we experience it i mean so often it's the case that when the woman gets angry instead of people listening to her and listening to why she's saying she's angry they get mad at her for being mad Mm -hmm. you know and so it's not that we have an irrational fear it's that we have practical experience with our anger not being well received and I think I put this in the book. I, I only found, I think it was one study that talked about what women dread when they're angry, like what it is they fear in terms of retaliation. And it wasn't violence or any any kind of financial punishment. It was actually mockery. And I mm-hmm. thought that was really interesting because we just get used to being made fun of and not being taken seriously. Even when we're angry, which is supposed to be a time when you're thinking very seriously about something, right? I mean, generally speaking, people don't get angry on a whim or because it makes them feel good. They get angry because there's been some sort of insult or harm or threat or affront.
0: And I found your discussion of the many different ways and in, w- in which women become angry at different parts of society where they face inequality... Your book is structured topically around these different areas, Um, and as I was reading, I just really appreciated how you took these different chunks of a woman's life, as it were, and looked at anger in those certain circumstances. Did you always have this type of structure
2: or a topical approach in mind when you were writing the book? I started off actually thinking about life stages, like what did it mean to move through the various life stages that we go through as we age? Um, because it was so clear immediately how early the treatment of our anger became restrictive. And I wanted to see, well, what happens over time? Is there ever a time in the life of women when it is acceptable for us to express a full range of human emotion? I ended up folding that into these other themes because... The themes that I, that I worked with, it, it was always sort of a back and forth between the life stage and the impact uh, on a woman's life. So themes having to do with bodies and mental health and work and the kinds of obstacles we encounter in our day-to-day lives. So I went back and forth several times, but I ended up trying to weave the life stages into each of those areas.
0: We'll be back with more from Soraya Shamali after a word from our sponsor. This week's sponsor of Reading Women is The Great Courses Plus. You know, as avid readers, we are constantly seeking to learn new things like any good Ravenclaw would and to gain insight into the books and characters that fascinate us and to better appreciate our own world, which is why we really love The Great Courses Plus. This streaming and learning service offers in-depth, reliable information on just about anything we're interested in, whether it's literature, history, cooking, science, psychology, or even learning a new language. The Great Courses Plus is an unlimited access to thousands of topics presented by renowned experts who are so passionate about what they teach, and you can watch or listen entirely on your own schedule from anywhere.
1: The Great Courses Plus is actually really cool. And... One of the courses that we are excited to talk about is The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction. And obviously, this is something that I'm interested in. <laughs> um, one thing that I think is really cool is that, you know, most of us have read like Agatha Christie or Gillian Flynn or Attica Locke. And so I've often wondered, you know, where did this genre come from or where, how did mystery stories come about? And so this is a course that explores that. It has 36 different lectures on a wide range of topics ranging from female detectives to Nordic noir to femme fatales to cozy mysteries and so it just really digs into and explores the origins of the mystery story which I think is really cool and something that I knew nothing about so there is so much to discover about mysteries and other things on The Great Courses Plus. And so to help you get started, they're offering our listeners a special limited time offer. It's a full month of unlimited access to their entire library for free. So you just have to sign up through our special URL today to enjoy a free month. So you can go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com
0: slash readingwomen That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash readingwomen, and you can participate in this free offer. Of course, everything about The Great Courses Plus will be in our show notes, so go check it out. And thanks again to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women. So we've been talking about how you approached Rage Becomes Her in an almost topical way where you looked at women's anger in different areas of our lives, such as mental health, reproductive rights, motherhood. Uh, And the topic that really stood out to me was your chapter on women's pain and how women's pain is typically not believed, uh, that we are actually in the pain that we are in. And one anecdote that you gave in the book was that there was a woman who went in for heart pain, essentially like chest pain, and she was sent home. And she eventually died because she did not get the care that she needed in the emergency situation that she needed it in. And I have a disabling chronic disease, I am no stranger to emergency rooms, and one of those times in my life was in danger. And I repeatedly told the doctor that I needed help and was delayed and belittled, and after several hours I did get the help that I needed. But only after I lost my temper and I started yelling at him. That has been my life experience as a woman is like, you know, you don't get the help that you need for your pain until you are angry and express that almost as a man would. It's almost like you have to like switch to what how they would understand. Right. You know, and that's hard. Yes. That chapter was very meaningful and and personal for me, but I appreciated you tackling that topic because I believe it's something that we definitely need to discuss more um, in society.
2: I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I think we're talking a little bit more about bias in medicine now, and the studies are really clear. They're very consistent. Um, It's just harder for people of color and for women to get the medical help and attention that they need. And um, even things like longer wait times in emergency rooms, it, it makes a difference. It makes a difference to people's health and well being, and sometimes even mortality rates. But as you just said, it's very hard for women to overcome all this socialization and be assertive and angry and demanding. But it turns out that because men are more comfortable doing that, they get help faster. It's not just that women are being, you know, asked to be patient, which they clearly are more often, but that because the there's not as much incompatibility between masculinity and being angry, men just do it more in emergency rooms. And so they get attention more often, um, or at least that's what some of the researchers really, really believe. Um, but I think it's interesting that the other thing that I found, there's a chapter on pain and, and physical health and women's pain and women's anger are treated in remarkably similar ways, Mm -hmm. you know, the minimization and, and the sort of penalization for pointing it out or try or people trying to ignore it. Um, they, they just end up being treated in remarkably similar ways.
0: It's like Hilary Mantel's experience with endometriosis and yes. they, they literally thinking she was crazy and putting her in a facility.
2: It's amazing, right? Like, it's amazing. You think that's like
0: out of a novel or something? Like, I how is this real life? But it is uh, for so many women. And it also makes me worry for the women in my life, like, will they be able to get the help they need? You know, like, Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely something that affects us on an everyday basis. Sometimes I think these ideas are so broad and like, it's hard for us to imagine what they would look like for us every day, but then you gave concrete examples of that. And it was just like, Oh, that's what that looks like.
2: Yeah. And I think we grow up not learning to question androcentricity, right? We just, We're never taught what it means to be women growing up in a world literally built by men for men. And that affects things like our urban planning, right? Like it's easy enough to point to public bathrooms, for example, and say, you know, public bathrooms were never built with women in mind. That's why we're still standing in lines, right? And that's a very clear physical manifestation of a problem. But that same issue, which is having men be the standard for uh, not just men, but like able-bodied men, be the standard for what is a normal human also affects everything. It affects medical research. It affects um, education. It affects how we perceive credibility and knowledge and um, anger is uh, part of that.
1: One of the things I found that was most helpful in your book was i mean i think i'm pretty good at you know discerning blatant sexism like i think we pretty much all know what that is but your discussion of benevolent sexism i felt like was really helpful from just my own thinking um i grew up in a very conservative environment and like i always felt kind of repressed but can never quite put my finger on why I felt that way. So could you define that term for our listeners and talk about how it differs from maybe sexism
2: as they're used to thinking about it? So researchers make a distinction between what you would maybe describe as hostile sexism, which, as you said, the kind of more obvious and blunt forms of sexism, like someone saying girls are stupid and can't do math, right? That's distinguished from what is called benevolent or sometimes ambivalent sexism, which isn't so easy to spot. It's the sexism of paternalism and chivalry and the idea that you just, as a woman, need to be protected. And so on the surface, it may seem like a positive thing. Like, of course, it's so nice that men open doors or that uh, they identify their role as being, for example, a primary wage earner, right? But that idea of protection comes at great cost. And um, the costs include less political involvement and efficacy, punishment for seeking equal pay. Um, Anything that threatens the masculine ideal of providing and protecting, which is baked into this idea of benevolent sexism, becomes a problem for women. So you can dress it up and say, well, isn't it nice that, that men are responsible for making all the money?" but in fact it fundamentally undermines gender equality to believe that women should be protected by men in that way
1: yes yes that's that's very helpful and i think that that feeling of or that rhetoric around protection and like you said i mean and you just said it very clearly but it seems right or it seems good on the surface but it's actually like really harmful and really disempowering. It's even funny, like in my resistance of it have been labeled as angry. So it's just really interesting, like how that cycle works, you know.
2: I mean, I, I think it's interesting because I grew up also in a conservative Catholic family. And, you know, the, a lot of conservative cultures espouse what they describe as complementary roles for men and women. Right. And that everyone's equal but separate. You know, Mm -hmm. and in fact that's never the case because those complementary systems are always hierarchical, they aren't actually equal and balanced, and so one status always men in the in these systems have I mean one one gender has higher status, and that higher status always ends up being structural control of politics and economics and religious life and education and the law. And to equate that, for example, with women's nurturing roles in homes is fatuous. It's just simply not equal because women are always in those situations left dependent and vulnerable. I kind of joke, but I always have in my head that where men are
1: venerable, women are vulnerable. I mean, that's always the case. Sad but true. Sad but true.
0: And you had an example in the book where a young man was like, motherhood is the most important job in the world or whatever. You can give lip service and say that you think motherhood is the most important role or whatever, but that's also boiling down women to just motherhood as opposed to that just being part of being a woman. So you also talk about That in the sense that women are still doing a lot of the emotional labor in the home, how they're also, you know, to stay in the middle class, you have to have two working adults, essentially. But then when you come home, the women are still expected to not only like cook and do all the domestic chores, but also emotionally support their spouse and take care of their children. So could you talk a little more about emotional labor? Because I don't feel like a lot of people have heard that term before.
2: Right. So um, there are a couple of things, right? I mean, we know that a great source of stress and fatigue and anger for women is that they do a lot more unpaid work. And that unpaid work includes care work for the elderly and for children and for spouses and domestic work and um, it consumes a lot of time and there's a, a real imbalance in, in work, unpaid work and leisure time for men and women. And the emotional labor sort of is a dimension of that. Um, it was actually first, that term was coined first by, a uh, sociologist at, at Berkeley, Arlie Hochschild, who actually described emotional labor as part of work that women are paid to do where they are required to set aside their own work, their own feelings, and to present a pleasant uh, service face, basically. So uh, flight attendants, for example, or women working in the food service industry. Um, It's now expanded, too, though, to include um, not just the emotional requirements of a job, but the labor that women do maintaining family relationships and social networks and taking care of the quote-unquote emotional aspects of domestic life, right? Like who throws a birthday party for children? Who thinks about whether to send um, holiday cards? All of those types of things. Then we see it also in the workplace where women are then doing what has been called office housework and they're taking care of logistics and social life and managing the emotions of the people around them by default Um, and it's a huge tax on women
1: and it's everywhere like that's the thing is like once I started to think about it it was kind of scary to me how like when I first got married how I just assumed all of those roles without even questioning it without even thinking about it you know and add the time you
2: just don't think about it it becomes second nature to all of us
1: Right. And like, and it was at a time, you know, I was very clear with my husband when we first got married, like, you know, we're gonna have an egalitarian household and all this stuff. And we were very purposeful about how, like, our relationship was. And yet, like, all this, like, shadow sexism, like, still creeped in the door. And it's just so, yeah, it's just really eye opening. That's not really a question. It's just a comment.
2: <laughs> yeah, true, though. And, and part of it is just that you know, even as children, if you think about, and we also know this from studies, girls are just expected to, quote unquote, babysit other children, right. like siblings, neighbors, cousins. No one gives it a second thought, you know. And part of that is being kind to them and nurturing them and, you know, taking on the, the proto-maternal behaviors that society requires Um, as part of what is, in theory, our primary role.
0: Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I'm the youngest of youngest of youngest people, so I'm the youngest of my whole family, if that makes sense.
2: I'm the
0: oldest of my whole family. I found, like, because I was the youngest, I didn't naturally... Have to do a lot of that. And so I have a very assertive personality and a very, um, I know I bluntly say, like, this is what I need in X job or whatever. And so a lot of people will label something like that, an assertive woman, as, like we talked before, like a bossy or like a front. And they get way more affronted by that type of just blatant, this is what I need to do my job kind of assertiveness. And I think you definitely can see that.
2: And you just described a huge problem for women, right? Because particularly at work or in social situations or even classroom dynamics, we're constantly doing the work of calibrating our tone and our affect so that we are not seen as transgressive or threatening and so that we're not called bitches or aggressive. And that takes its toll all the time, right? Like if we could just say what we had to say bluntly it doesn't mean we're being rude. It's just we're being clear, right? right. But so many times we we hedge and we couch our ideas even in nurturing ways. We you know, we ask questions so that we don't appear too bossy, as you said. And that's just exhausting. Like if you're doing that all day all the time, um and black women describe this as being a constant in their lives because of the assumption, of course, of the stereotype that they are angry by default, that they are angry black women. And so doing the work of trying to counteract that assumption uh, takes a lot out of people.
1: Near the end of your book, you say that, you know, if anger is also considered a poison, it's also an an antidote. And that um, angry women burn brighter than the sun. So one of the questions we wanted to ask you is, Like, what are some positive ways that women can wield their anger for good?
2: Oh, wow. Well, I tried as hard as I could to to find some some good, positive suggestions. Um, One is I think that women come together in anger and they form these incredible, joyful communities that are focused on shared values and change. And I think we see that over and over and over again. Um, and we've certainly seen it in our politics, uh, and I think we'll continue to see it in our politics. That's also true of people that you might consider a political opponent. Um, they are angry, and they will also come together to build communities. and and so, you know, I think for individuals, being able to find these communities or build these communities is a is quite a healthy way of dealing with anger so that it doesn't turn in on on a person right the second thing is that people are really creative with their anger i mean i made a a spotify playlist while i was writing this book full of music written by women who had written songs because they were angry or were articulating a particular feeling of rage in their music you can see it in art all the time and you can also legitimately Hold people accountable with anger. The thing about anger is it's very rarely a feeling of resignation. And we learn as girls actually not to hold boys and men accountable. It's part of living in a patriarchal culture. But in fact, anger is all about accountability. And it doesn't mean that we have to be unhinged or violent or any of the equally unhealthy and negative aspects of anger that we tend to focus on. But we can very rationally and methodically and strategically hold people accountable. And when I think, for example, of the U.S. gymnasts who, you know, eventually after so many years came together and were able to put Larry Nassar in jail, that's what I think of. You know, these women had terrible anger, but being able to use that anger the way they did Um, as is the case for many victims of sexual violence, is a path to overcoming trauma. And so I think there are many ways that we can think of anger positively.
0: Autumn and I could talk to you about this book for hours. Uh, We've already been talking about it for hours, and now that you're on the line, so many questions are popping up, but we are out of time to chat with you about this. But before you go, uh, we always like to ask our guests on the podcast, um, what are some great books by women that you have read recently, or maybe books for further reading
2: on the topic? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, There's so many. There's so many. This is how I even found you in the first place. Um, so I, I couldn't possibly answer that without talking about Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage and Rebecca yes. Tracy's Good and Mad, because, in fact, the three of us wrote these books virtually in the same time frame, and they overlap in certain areas, but they're really complementary. They're just, you know, I, I've read both of them now, and I've been amazed at where we've come together and where we've diverged. And I loved both books and highly recommend them. Um, I also loved the book *The Power* as a work of fiction. Uh, there are a couple of books by Lauren uh, Groff. I don't know if you've read any of them. Um, I yes. found I found her her writing to just be really so beautiful. Um, And it's just I've sort of swallowed a whole stack of them at one fell swoop recently. (laughs) Um, And that was really fun. And what else? I read a fair amount of science fiction. And I think I'm trying to think of the, the most recent one that I've read. I think it was called Binti. I don't know yeah. if you're, yes. you're familiar with Vinny. It's familiar. really wonderful. Huge yes. fans. <laughs> I know, me too, and and so those are also like candy. Also, if people like sort of Greek mythology, I I like I love Circe. Yeah, um, it, it was just super fun to read, and I also like books by Jill Laporte. <laughs> <laughs> so everything from her most recent these truths to the history of wonder woman which i found super fun it was really good oh and i should mention i don't know if you've read the incendiaries i really loved that book
0: yes Auro Kwan's st- pro style is just like i just how how is she so amazing
2: <laughs> i know i know it's really um there's just as you know better than anybody not enough time in the day
1: there there really isn't and that's like the incendiaries has been on my stack for months and i'm like oh i can feel it watching me right now
2: yeah i mean really they're fun and and audiobooks i wasn't listening to them very much but they've been really wonderful recently i don't know why yeah i really like listening to them
1: we we are huge proponents of audiobooks around here really enjoy them we We also wanted to ask you, um are there any projects that you're working on right now that you'd like to share with our listeners? We know some writers don't like to share if it's too early,
2: but we always like to ask um so i I have been thinking a lot a lot about it. I'm really very interested in actually something you described, which is the small ways that we never think about how woven into our lives, these biases and And really, sexism is, you know, it's just so much part of our traditions and our religions and our culture. And so I'm really thinking hard about um, what that looks like on a day-to-day basis and how people can become more aware. Because it's very clear from a lot of research, too, that when people are asked, when they're asked to look at what's happening around them and they become aware They cannot then unsee it, right? -hmm. It is a question, though, of that consciousness raising and how best to do it. How do you introduce ideas that are hard because they challenge people's identities, they challenge easy, efficient, and traditional ways of doing things. But we sort of have to do it, and we have to do it all the time, Um, and we have to do it while we're smiling, (laughs) right?
0: <laughs> yes. It's like, it's like, what was the, what's the saying? Like anything a man does, a woman has to do it in heels. Like backwards, yeah. uphill.
1: In yeah. the rain. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Well, we will definitely be on the lookout for all of your future work, but thank you so much, Soraya, for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about your book. We really loved reading it and enjoyed talking to you about it.
2: Thank you again. And um, I'm just going to keep following you because I just love the work that you're doing too. Thank you.
1: Um, Thanks so much.
0: We'd like to thank Saraya Shamali for talking to us about Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, which is out now from Atria Books. You can find her on her website, saraya.shamali.com and on Twitter at sshamali. And of course, all of Soraya's information will be linked in our show notes.
1: We'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at KD Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening to Reading Women Podcast and we will talk to you soon.